President Abraham Lincoln once said, no other human occupation opens so wide a field for the profitable and agreeable combination of labor with cultivated thought as agriculture. Welcome to Groundwork. This is a podcast where we dig into all things farm policy. I'm your host, Tom Sell. I'm very happy to say we are really blessed in agriculture by those who embody this agreeable combination of hard work and higher thinking. We love to feature such bright lights on this podcast, and that's certainly the case today. We're honored to have my good friend, Dr. Bart Fisher, who's a professor of agricultural economics at Texas A&M. And recently, the Ag Food and Policy Center worked with a team of researchers from really across the country, some of the best ag economists to publish a report on the U.S. beef supply chain. This is a big issue. Challenges in the cattle supply chain are not new, but the pandemic uh, really herded these problems to the forefront with historic spreads between the prices our ranchers get paid for their cattle and the prices people pay at the grocery store or at other retail outlets. So today we're going to jump onto this horse and, and try and gain some clarity on the issue, this old issue with a new wrinkle and explore what could be done to address it. It's a hot topic in Washington, D.C. So I want to say a special welcome to Bart. We're so glad uh, that you could join, join us on Groundwork today. And Bart, just to start, you know, growing up, you were involved in ag production. Uh, you're from Oklahoma. Uh, uh, you've worked in ag policy on Capitol Hill. You have a really unique perspective. But really, I just want to start to, to have you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and, and how you got to those opportunities and uh, kind of your background uh, from the state of Oklahoma. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on today, Tom. It's great to be with you. Um, I did grow up on a farm and ranch in southwestern uh, Oklahoma. I was the fifth generation to be raised on, on our operation. We raised primarily wheat uh, and cotton, but also ran a, a cow-calf herd and also uh, you know, periodically ran, ran stockers. As, uh, agriculture has always uh, has been important to me. I'm still act, actually still uh, actively involved at home. I try to never get too far too far away from it. Oklahoma, as a Texan, I'd say Oklahomans have always been very industrious, but but man, where did this intellectual prowess come from? That's really unique from Oklahoma. <laughs> I, I think some would probably question whether that's actually the case or not, but uh, I, uh, I, well, I'll say it started at Oklahoma State University, so I got <laughs> oh, there you go at, uh, at OSU, but uh, you know, long story short, I uh, I ended up uh, doing my PhD at Texas A&M and was asked to uh, to go out to Washington D.C. by then Chairman Lucas, representing Western Oklahoma, the, the third district of Oklahoma, as the incoming chairman. He asked if I would come out to D.C. and serve as his chief economist, uh, which I did throughout the development of the 2014 Farm Bill. I was then very fortunate to stay on in the same role uh, with Chairman Mike Conaway from the 11th district of Texas, out of out of Midland. So stayed on as chief economist, uh, also was able to, to work on and lead the international ag development portfolio, which meant I sort of served as his de facto trade advisor. Uh, and then throughout the development of the 18, 2018 Farm Bill, also was able to serve as deputy staff director. And so had the opportunity to work on, on two the last two farm bills in Washington, but then two years ago was uh, asked to come back at a college station to, to take over as co-director of the Ag and Food Policy Center. So I've been back here for two years now. Yeah, I'm pretty cool. And after your first in Washington, you did a little study in uh, uh, across uh, the Atlantic in in England, right? And then you and then while you were doing the farm bill, you you attained your doctorate from from Texas A&M. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. 
So I did actually right out of Oklahoma State, out of undergrad. So I did agricultural economics, accounting, and finance in undergrad at OSU, and then had the opportunity to go to Cambridge University in England. Uh, you know, I grew up on a farm driving a tractor in the middle of nowhere in western Oklahoma and wanted a, uh, wanted a very different experience to kind of see how the rest of the world thinks. And so oh, I did. So I did go from in, driving a tractor to punting the cam, huh? There, there you go. And uh, studied environmental policy uh, at one of the oldest universities in the world. And I did a stint in D.C., you know, working after after doing my master's and then came back to do a Ph.D. at A&M. And it was it was during that that I was asked to go back to D.C. and I did did end up finishing the Ph.D. I finished it remotely after helping write the 2014 Farm Bill. So having studied at such uh, great places, you're no stranger to complex issues and diving right into them. And I think that's kind of first takeaway I had from from y'all's report is that these cattle markets are really uniquely um, dynamic and, and complex. Um, so maybe we can just start with, with the question, um, why was it that you got into this report? I think Congress commissioned it. Uh, tell us kind of why and the background behind that. Sure, well, I mean, you alluded to it in the introduction too, Tom, that I mean, these issues on, on, on cattle markets, one of which is the issue of, of packer concentration. It's an issue that's been around forever. Uh, I, it wasn't, you know, the irony wasn't lost on us when we were writing this book, uh, the intro to the book. Uh, I was working on it the day that the Packers and Stockyards Act turned 100 years old. And so we've been dealing with these issues uh, for a very long time. But more recently, you know, you've seen some of these examples where there's just this divergence at price at the retail level and, and price at the at the farm gate. You know, you think of the Holcomb fire in August of 2019. Think of all the disruptions we saw during COVID. Some of the disruptions we've seen are around some of these you know, international hacking events that implicated the packing sector. And so you, you see these divergences, which raise a, a lot of questions in the mind of folks. It also just so happens that these, you know, some of these were happening at the same time that Congress was starting to consider reauthorization of mandatory price reporting. And you know, one of the ways we've tackled this over time was Congress passed mandatory price reporting where certain information is disclosed you know, through, through, you know, via transparency or in, in the name of transparency is, is disclosed to the, the general public. And so I think what happened was Congress was looking at reauthorizing mandatory price reporting. You had all these events happening. You have several members of Congress weighing in, particularly on the point of Fed cattle pricing with a number of proposals. And so you had in the 116th Congress, you had the bipartisan leadership of the House Ag Committee. So this is the Democratic chairman and the Republican ranking member coming together, asking us if we would take an independent look. Uh, you know, the center I run here, we work uh, for the House and Senate Ag Committees doing research on a variety of topics. And so uh, they asked us to look uh, look in, into into this topic. And so that's why that's why uh, the report was commissioned. So you mentioned the Packers and Stockyards Act, an important piece of legislation uh, in the ag arena. You know, even in your report, you 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 summarize. Well, you actually take from the the statement of purposes in the Packers Stockyards Act, where it says to assure fair competition and fair trade practices, to safeguard farmers and ranchers, to protect consumers, and to protect members of the livestock, meat, and poultry industries from unfair, deceptive, unjustly discriminatory, and monopolistic practices. That's a high charge, and these are important issues and difficult issues to wrap once one's uh, mind around and a wrap policy that's actually constructive uh, around. 
So we have that backdrop. And then in 2020, of course, we have this incredible pandemic that really wrenched uh, consumer demand for beef probably to start. It shifted people from eating out at restaurants. This is kind of after the the, the initial hoarding type of activity and and uh, shifted toward cooking and eating me- meals at home. Let me, let me just ask you, how, how did the pandemic affect packers? Um, and how does the fed cattle market interact with this processing capacity, this in part of the issue, just kind of the, the bottleneck or the, or the, the, um, the, the critical point that we have at, uh, the packing houses. Sure. I mean, the, the critical word you mentioned there, Tom, is probably interact. I mean, that is that is the challenge here is that there are a lot of different parts of this that are all interacting simultaneously. And so, I mean, if you really step back from this and zoom out, part of it is all, you know, is predicated on the fact that the cattle markets are extraordinarily complex. And so when we did, you know, in terms of how we set out doing our work, you know, we commissioned papers from a number of experts around the country. And so, you know, we contemplated just doing this report internal to AFPC, uh, but I'm not a livestock market economist. I don't do that. You know, I certainly deal with livestock, but I don't focus on that exclusively day in and day out. But there are a number of people around the country who do, who are really expert on this topic. And so, we were able to kind of tap into that expertise from all around the country. So we commissioned nine different papers from folks. We then brought them together in Kansas City in July to present the work, you know, their findings. But then we also invited discussants from industry from a variety of different perspectives, really some polar opposite perspectives to come in and really hash it out and provide feedback and a response to all of, all of this work. And then it was also open to the public. And we had a number of folks who came in offering opinions. And so, you know, we wanted to get that feedback really from across the country. And, and part of that is because this cattle markets are so complex, right? You have cow-calf sector, stocker sector, feeders, packers, you know, some middlemen post-packing, you know, and certainly retail with, and, and then on the retail front, a, num- a number of different outlets. And so you have all of these things interacting. And it was really a point that Dr. Peel from Oklahoma State makes. He wrote the first chapter of the paper, and that's really one he focused on is the fact that there may be you know, it may very well be that there is no more complicated market on the planet than the beef uh, markets when you have all these things uh, interacting. And so we did, as you mentioned in your question, that's what you know we saw. We saw this huge shift right away from from restaurants into grocery stores, which puts a huge strain uh, on the supply chain in this, you know, in the form of demand really shifted during the pandemic with all the disruption that comes with that. You also sit, then see uh, the Packers, you know, contending um, with COVID outbreaks, you know, in the fact that they do have, I mean, very heavy uh, in terms of labor where a lot of people are involved. And so they're navigating the pandemic on that front as well. And so even just at that segment uh, of the supply chain, you see both of those things colliding uh, colliding uh, at, at once. And of course, all of that then is against the backdrop of, well, how much capacity do we have? Where you do, you know, we have seen over the last few decades, packing capacity shrinking uh, over time. And as, you know, if you have fewer and, you know, if you have less and less capacity, particularly relative to the size of the cattle supply, that certainly drives the supply and demand and pricing fundamentals. And so you have all of those things interacting simultaneously in a very complicated uh, and complex way that uh, uh, was really driving what we were seeing in the midst of that. Yeah, you know, we often, I certainly often, uh, uh, 
you know, come down on the side of, of producers and all things, you know, it's where, it's where it starts. Those farmers and ranchers who take that initial risk um, and we love and we respect and we honor them. We try and honor them in, in all that we do on, on groundwork and, and other things that, 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 that we work with in Washington, D.C. And oftentimes those producers, you know, you have that old John F. Kennedy uh, saying that I love. And it's so true that the producers are the one person in the economy who buy host, whole, I'm sorry, buy retail, sell wholesale and pay the freight both ways. You know, that, that's certainly true, even in the even in the cattle market. So kind of easy guttural response, you know, when you see price spreads like we did is to kind of throw bombs and, and say someone is is uh, is is just getting rich here. But tell us a little bit about the complexity of this marketplace from the, the packer, the marketer of, 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 of beef standpoint. What kind of uncertainty was really thrown into the into the into the system for them during this this really unusual time? Well, I mean, I think just purely from that perspective, if you look downstream from the Packers one, I mean, they were having to navigate that too, right? In terms of where the product was ultimately going and all the disruption that happened there. You know, I alluded to all the labor issues and the uncertainty that surrounds uh, all of that uh, in the midst uh, midst of the pandemic. And those, you know, those, I think those are primarily the two the two biggest uh, issues that were, you know, that the Packers were were contending uh, contending with. Um, and so, I mean, from their perspective, I think those were the, you know, the two biggest, um, biggest issues. Yeah, it was a big deal, actually, getting people to work, keeping them safe, uh, 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 keeping it going. And, and even as your, your supply may be restricted because of that, because maybe you've had to limit shifts or whatever it is, you know, with, with limited supply, obviously, uh, and what was healthy demand on the beef side of the economy, natural for, for, for prices to rise in that case at the retail shelf. Isn't that right? No question. I mean, and I think a, a part of this challenge is we are talking about in these one-off events, right? I mean, we all, we're always having this conversation in general about packing capacity relative to, to supply, you know, to cattle supply. So, I mean, we're, that is always in the background, but we're also now talking about it in this unique context of these black swan or kind of one-off low probability events happening. And so, uh, and it's really, it's really difficult to kind of untangle, um, you know, those two things and those two scenarios, but we're really talking about it, you know, in that context. And that's exactly what happens where you, if you have something that disrupts, I was explaining it to a producer the other day, if you've got a river, you dam up the river downstream from the river, there's no water. Right. And so there's, your prices rise as you're competing for it upstream. Everyone's, you know, everyone's covered up by water. There's too much. And so it's, I mean, that's an oversimplification, but that's the, I mean, it's an, an illustration of kind of what, of what happens. And that's just with one segment, you know, we have multiple segments in the beef supply chain where all of these things can happen where there's timing lags and, you know, and, and, and a process that has to happen, you know, none of it, none of it, you know, all of these things take lead time and, and, and coordination. And so it's just extraordinarily complex. I do want to go back to the point you mentioned too, though, on the point of the, pro, the, the producer, because, you know, and it's one reason why, I mean, you know, we take all the work we do here seriously, but one reason why we wanted to get so much input is because, you know, there are a lot of opinions on this topic. We were asked to kind of give an objective, I mean, to do our work like we do all of our work right down the middle to try to be as objective as possible looking from an economic perspective. But we wanted to hear from everyone. And even in the producer cow-calf sector though, 
you know, we heard a litany of opinions that run the gamut, you know, from folks who are very concerned about the issue, you know, who and who want to see, you know, large sweeping changes to producers who are very concerned about making any changes at all. So even in that one segment of the supply chain, there's still it's it's not monolithic uh, either. Um, and there's a you know a number of opinions, but I I mean I share your concern. I grew up on a cow cow operation, right. and so yeah. I'm very sensitive to to that. And and you know I think one of the other things I would I mean there's a litany of things we could talk about here, right? But I mean the one it's a 280 page report after all. <laughs> the, one, the one year about a lot is on concentration, which really wasn't the the central feature of our book. We focused more on Fed cattle pricing, but even on concentration, you know the economics profession we've weighed in on that topic for a long time, uh, right? And most, I mean, most of the argument there is that there's some, you know, there may be some amount of, of market power, but the effect is largely small. And most economists, you know, will argue that the, the benefits that come from those economies of size and packing usually, you know, largely offset the cost. That doesn't mean though that there's not funny business going on, but that's why you have folks, you know, like DOJ, USDA and others who, who it's their job to look into those things. And so we don't, you know, we don't, the last thing I would want to do is dismiss the concerns that producers have on the on that front. But I think it's also important to note that there are you know agencies within the federal government whose job it is to look at those things and who by all accounts are looking at those things. And so, you know, we ended up not getting into that anymore because, you know, that's in that's really in the lane of DOJ and USDA. And we ended up focusing more on the Fed cattle pricing component of all of this. Yeah, so why don't you talk about that Fed cattle pricing uh, uh, a bit more? This this has been kind of a change and evolution of, of the industry over the last really probably couple of decades, um, uh, with so much of 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 the cattle uh, that are sold on on these kind of AMA type of uh, pricing arrangements. Talk a little bit about that, just so folks are familiar, and then I want to kind of move to kind of where should we go in the future? Sure, and so uh, and. You know, we published the letter, the request letter from Congress, it's included in the book. And one of the things, I mean, Congress did also just ask us to focus in uh, on this particular issue. And you mentioned the alternative marketing arrangements. That's where their focus is there, because quite frankly, there are a lot of legislative proposals. A lot of members of Congress have offered proposals on this front. And so, you know, they're contending with what to do, you know, on all of that. And so we we did spend most of our time there, most of the book for those, you know, folks who read through it will find that we, we spend a lot of time focused on, on that. And really it comes down to, you know, for folks who aren't, you know, terribly familiar with it, um, you know, you have, you know, for uh, fed cattle, you sell them, you know, via cash, you know, or negotiated arrangement, but increasingly over time, we're using, you know, a formulaic uh, sort of approach. And, you know, one thing that, we, you know, that came out during this report and during the discussion in Kansas City was most of that innovation was from the ground up. It wasn't, you know, packers imposing this, that they insist on having this formulaic, uh, you know, uh, pricing uh, mechanism. It was really ground up primarily to reward those, uh, you know, you know, uh, to reward quality and to differentiate quality uh, in in beef. And so, uh, and it was really to capture that value. And it was really an innovation that came, as I mentioned, ground up primarily through through the feeders. And so, uh, you've seen this organic growth over time, where we we have less and less negotiated 
trade and more and more formula-based trade with, um, you know, with generally there is some negotiated price under it, but a lot of it is done you know, on a formula basis. And the concern in the countryside largely has been that, well, we've gotten too far away from negotiated trade so that we don't really, we don't have robust enough uh, cash or, uh, or negotiated trade to be able to then rely on those, that, that formula pricing. And so we really delved into those issues. That was probably the, the, the hottest topic at the workshop, the one that, that garnered the most attention and is, you know, it's the one that's garnered the most feedback uh, on the book as well. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Y'all do, I, I tell you, the, the, the contributors to this report, the, the authors from the various universities, they really do a remarkable job of, of kind of painting this picture and how it has evolved, even these regional differences uh, that you mentioned. So I, I really want to commend it uh, to our listeners today. It's, it's an excellent report. Man, it's definitely a topic uh, that people have really strong opinions about. Um, I, I really think Dr. Stephen Kuntz sums it up really well in, in, in the paper that he submitted. He noted that these AMAs uh, really improve the system overall, but also just recognizes these arrangements do, they just impart a cost on the remaining cash market. I guess from my perspective, there has been good growth in demand for beef products because of the focus on quality, especially in some of the things that have been brought about because of the AMAs. Let's talk just a little bit about where things are going. I, I mean, I know anecdotally on, on the ground, there, there's a lot of uh, capacity being built at the smaller uh, type of uh, boutique operations. Boutique is probably not a fair word, but the, but the smaller packers, regional packers uh, throughout the land. Um, there are also big plans being talked about in Nebraska and other states of uh, farmers uh, or ranchers building co-ops to increase uh, the packing capacity. Um, how do you see all that affecting the market and, and uh, kind of what, what concluding thoughts would you have on, on, on where all this is going and what would be a proper role uh, for any changes uh, in the law uh, affecting the marketing of cattle? You know, I think on that, most of the changes to the law have been on, you know, you know mandating this certain level of, of uh, negotiated trade. And on that front, you know, one of the chapter authors was uh, Dr. Stephen Kuntz from Colorado State. Was on that particular topic, if, if not the, one of the most preeminent scholars in the world on that very, that very point. And he, you know, one of the, the points he highlights is that, you know, well, one, there's a, a tremendous efficiency in using, you know, formula based. And, you know, I alluded to the guys at Kansas State highlighting that during COVID, that predictability was also very, you know, very helpful in the midst of all the chaos. Uh, and so, you know, one of the, the, the estimates that he made was that to, to go to some of these proposals could reduce, instead of helping prices at the cow-calf uh, level, could end up, you know, reducing value by up to 16 billion over 10 years, depending on the proposal. And that one, that one has certainly garnered a lot of, uh, of feedback, um, you know, from, from the countryside. But I mean, he is, he, like I mentioned, he's one of the preeminent scholars, if not the preeminent scholar on that topic. And, and uh, you know, he obviously has a great deal of concern, you know, over unintended consequences of making some of these changes, which by all, you know, accounts are very well intentioned, 
I mean, the, the intent behind them is very, is, is solid. I would never question that. It's just, well, what are the unintended consequences if these things uh, you know, were put in place? I think we look at the capacity issue to some degree the same way. It's, this is less about legislation. You know, there's not a lot, you know, you don't see much by way of, of legislative proposal on capacity other than through incentives, right? So you have the Biden administration who announced a $500 million uh, package earlier this summer which I, we're still to some degree waiting to see some details, but most of that, the intent was to come in the forms of loans and grants for folks who are wanting to do uh, some of this smaller scale uh, regional, you know, smaller regional uh, packing capacity. The thing we noted in our book, uh, and it, this was in one of the findings, I think it was near the end uh, of our list of findings is just a caution and an encouragement for folks who are looking at doing that to, you know, to do it eyes wide open, um, you know, in a sustainable and economically viable way. Because you look at, if you look at capacity and isolation and how it shrunk over time, and then in the midst of these very, these huge once in a lifetime disruptions, you know, you see this real need for adding, you know, adding capacity, or you can really tangibly see the benefits of adding the capacity back. But what happens when the cattle cycle shifts? Right, you know, and it and it will. I mean, there is a site, there is a cattle cycle, and and that cycle interacts with capacity, uh, and so um, you know, our encouragement is just eyes wide o open, um, you know. And there was a lot of discussion on this too, uh, you know, including. I mean, I won't call it cynical. It was, you know, it was coming from folks who've had decades of experience in the industry, you who had been on the front lines of building capacity you know, who noted that, you know, it, it, it may require multiple ownership changes before you get to the point uh, of being profitable. And I don't think that was a cynical, it wasn't cynical. It was a, it was a, a cautionary note on, on, on being very careful uh, if you're getting into that game. And a lot of that also has to do with, you know, what market you have in place. And so if you're doing that, if you're doing that and building that capacity for a, to serve a specific market need, well, that's fundamentally different too. Um, and so a lot of it is against the backdrop of, of how and where into what market you're trying to, if you're trying to satisfy some sort of niche. A lot of wisdom there, Mark. You know, when, when you talk about the cattle cycle, you know, there are so many mature, mama cows uh, in our nation in a given year, and that can swing based on droughts and, and, and other things that can happen uh, to the supply side. Uh, so there's so many calves that are, that are, that are coming of age and, and, and ready to, be, uh, uh, to go to pack. So yeah, it, right now we may be at a point of uh, more supply than we have a packing capacity, but that can, that can shift and it can shift quickly times and the cattle market has seen that and and uh business has been have been been caught a perfect example we saw what happened five six years ago following that four-year prolonged uh, drought in the middle of the plains right we've we had capacity shrinking over time suddenly we had uh supply uh you know uh shrinking as well prices end up going you know going up significantly but if we've brought on additional capacity we see a similar contraction at some point uh, from the perspective of the cow-calf producer, we may have very high prices. From the perspective of the person having to bid <laughs> and try to cash flow uh, a processing operation while paying those very high prices like we saw, uh, that value proposition looks a lot different if you're not looking at it through the lens of the cow-calf producer. And yes, to the extent that those two are one and the same and that you have some of these that are cooperatively owned, um, you know, you're, 
in some of those instances, you're able to look at it more holistically, but you still want, you, you want both segments of the operation to kind of be able uh, to be economically viable too. And so you know, we don't, uh, the last thing I would do is tell anybody what to do. It is just offering cautionary notes on, um, to go in both, you know, eyes wide open. Well, I'd say it's required reading the USB supply chain issues and challenges uh, edited by Bart Fisher, Dr. Joe Outlaw, Dr. David P. Anderson, all great cow hands uh, from Texas A&M University, the Ag Food and Policy Center. Bart, I want to thank you again for joining us. It's been a great conversation on a pressing and, and, and really challenging issue. Thanks for your great work. Thanks for all the work that AFPC does uh, in the research field to find solutions for feeding our nation, a pretty important task. That's going to do it for this episode of Groundwork. I'm Tom Sell.